welcome to the Red Pill Training Podcast. We are back with Season 3 with myself, James Jowsey, Phil Mansfield and Gemma Chambers. Hello and welcome to the Red Pill Podcast. This week, um, joined as ever by uh, Gemma, who's actually with us this week. Hey, Jim. Hey, Phil. Um, and the boss, Mr. Jaws. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you, Philip. Um, right, guys, we are talking about strength and power today. Um, interesting, a uh, very interesting subject, which has the research for this is, uh, of course, it's one of the most researched areas of. Uh, conditioning or strength strength and conditioning and it is there's a lot to talk about a lot to get through so um what we'd like to get out of the podcast really is to share with i think a lot of strength coaches or a lot of coaches in general appreciate that there is a strength element to the sport they're coaching um and and because every sport sport has its own strength element what tends to happen is that sort of precipitates a coach's need or a feeling of need to produce some kind of strength training program for the athlete and then I think the problem arises there where they go where they sort of think well the sort of mental processes I I would like to improve the strength of my athlete within this particular sport and then you sort of go in and start researching and then just a plethora of protocols comes up in front of you and then deciphering those those protocols and deciding on which protocol to actually choose if i'm if i'm going to be uh, honest i would say that um most strength coaches will basically to select it on which way the wind goes or which way the wind blows or what's most which way is was most current at the moment or which has the most noise associated around it. And and I don't think that's a, that's absolutely, because I've been in the situation myself. That's absolutely me, not me saying if anyone's doing anything wrong. It's just that it's just that how do you decipher? I'm going to do five by five. How do you decipher? I'm going to do three by three. How do you decipher? I'm going to go 80%. How do you see? I'm going to, am I going to go GVT? Am I going to go, where Where am I going to go? There are so many well-researched, well-put-together strength protocols that the bias for a system is, one, usually what worked best for myself, and two, what worked well for a couple of my clients, rather than potentially being able to understand each protocol in its own entity and assign that protocol with the particular athlete and I think that's my goal for this call is to get your guys expertise is to help the coaches out there say right what type of strength protocol should I be selecting for different types of athlete and how do I get the best out of them Gemma I think that yeah I, I don't agree exactly with what you're saying you almost if I think about it from a physio point of view and from like a rehab background you you're always trying to be the most up to date with all your evidence, etc. But then you go on, you go online or you go on a course and you almost get sort of guided by whatever the most recent is or whatever, like you said, has got the most noise behind it. And without some sort of real 
diligent research into that piece of evidence or whatever it might be, you don't know that that actually would work for the person that you're thinking about in front of you. And that's the other thing. I, I don't think that these protocols can always apply to everybody that you've got in front of you because you might have somebody that's trains two times a week and just wants to run, I don't know, a 5K in a decent time. And then you've got elite athletes. And I don't know how you can apply each protocol to that without um, without sort of not getting the most out of that person. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I can see the difficulty. I think one of the, the big discussions within sprint training and, well, I mean, rehabilitation, like you said there, Gemma, a lot of the hamstring injuries that come on, so there's so much research around the strength of the hamstring um, and then the analysis of what the hamstring does whilst running. And I remember literally reading a, a study a couple of years ago where the guy, his take was, or his, he proved that, um, that the hamstrings were isometric isometrically working during the swing phase so the swing phase being where the obviously you've got the stance leg is on the floor but the the other leg that's off the floor is swinging through so he'd proven at that point in time that the swing phase was isometric so then he summarized his summarized his um study saying that um current protocols have been mainly based on eccentric base work but now we should switch them to isometric based off based off this which which is fundamentally flawed in itself anyway, because he's talking about, he's deciding his whole strength training protocol based off one point in time of the movement. And then since that point, that was a couple of years ago, there's now been another one during studying the, the same phase of running, now proving that there is, there is a lengthening there during the swing phase. So they're kind of constantly trying to decipher, well, is it or isn't it? But then sometimes, it's not always, but sometimes people then put all their eggs in one basket of saying, well, so therefore training should be isometric because it's isometrically focused at this point in time rather than looking at the whole big picture of strength training. Perhaps a controversial point there, but or a pedantic point even, but does isometric even exist? I think that's the first. Let's even let's go down there. Like pure isometric is not possible. It is not possible to stand still in a static state without any motion at all. And I'm being very pedantic. Um, but if you if we are arguing nuances of science, isometric is not possible. It is not possible to not shake you know you could say okay a wall sit is isometric a wall sit is not isometric there will be small amounts of knee motion there will be small amounts of hip motion against the wall holding a dumbbell or even holding not even holding a dumbbell just holding my arm at my elbow at 90 degrees without any kind of lateral inertia that comes from the floor and moving is impossible a true isometric in its true sense of the word isn't possible. 
Um, and so from there, any kind of, you know, you read often this, the, the isometric phase of a lift, or there is this isometric part of a lift. There is not, there is at no point where you film a sporting motion and, st- and see a stillness in three planes of motion. You will all, there will always be some kind of bone motion. And if there's some kind of bone motion, then there must be some kind of muscular changing or a muscular um, differentiation. I can see that um, being applicable to a lot of tasks. Where does it then come in in the sense of, well, if my idea of being isometric, so I, in theory, would like... Well, no, I would like to my upper body to be as solid, as isometric as possible during a squat so that I can transfer that force from my legs through a solid torso. So therefore the isometric element of the trunk and everything there, like where does that like, yeah. So therefore do I train isometrically there? Because that is my desire, whether it happens or not. Like, like you said, the the nuance and the pedantic nature of it. Do you still train at them? It's a wonderful question, but I think the um, no, you don't uh, is, is is my answer. Um, but but there is that. Okay, if you're looking at the squat there, as I come down into the squat, I'm the variances of anterior and posterior rotation of the pelvis on the way down in, in the squat. So we're just talking about what would previously have been called the eccentric phase of the squat. As, as you're going down into the squat, there is sagittal plane. It's not even talking about frontal transverse for now. This is talking about sagittal plane. There is a variance of degrees within my pelvis. If there's a variance of degrees in my pelvis, that means by nature, there is a variance of degrees at L5. If L5 is moving, L4 is moving relatively to L5 and so on and so on so up the chain. So there isn't a situation there where isometric strength is required. Now, what we can't confuse, what we shouldn't confuse is low amounts of motion with high amounts of co-contraction is not isometric. So what you've described there is low amounts of motion at a joint, in this case, a facet joint, uh, with minimal degrees of motion, high degrees of stability. But then if we go back and look at our sort of strength, oh, sorry, our flexibility, stability models, where the greater the co-contraction, the reduction of the flexibility is, is apparent. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about isometric. So if we're talking about pure specificity for the upper body during um during the squatting motion, we are looking at some kind of movement within the lumbar segments or within within the core region. I would agree with you and say your your most amount of force production you could you could you could produce would be in a static position. You just can't be in a static position when other bones are moving. It's just not possible. So with that in mind why would you not train like your answer to jazzy was that you wouldn't train it why would you not train it i wouldn't train isometric 
but you train like a co-contraction or you train to look like what you want it to look like within a squat. Precisely. Precisely. So I would try to, of course, better and replicate the, the motions that, go, that, that, that the spine will go through during, during, the, motion, during the squatting motion, if that's, if that's what we're talking about. Um, but, but I would never go in with the implicit intention of isometric contraction within the spine because I know the reality of it is that that isn't going to be possible. Yeah, so based on what you've just said, which I agree with, I don't know how you'd be able to keep everything perfectly still in without any sort of motion somewhere because the body's going to try and constantly keep a certain equilibrium, isn't it? And so you're going to get switching on and off of, of different muscle groups. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a small example there would be if you're talking sagittal plane, because the the next argument would be to say, okay, well then, what about the thoracic spine? Yes, I can see with the pelvis moving that there is some lumbar segmental motion, but as we squat down, as you, as we all know, <clears throat> we go into greater amounts of hip flexion. So as we go into greater amounts of hip flexion, we still can't allow that hip flexion to take over. So we still need a certain uprightedness of, of, the, of the thoracic spine. And so the thoracic spine will be fighting itself into extension to try and hold the bar position, to try and hold tension through the back. And so, and so you've got a, a hip that's going through flexion and you've got a thoracic spine that's going through extension. They're, they're opposing motions. Um, so you would have extension and relative extension of the thoracic spine during a squatting motion, so there's there's absolutely tons of uh, tons of co-contraction there uh, without without there being a great deal of motion, uh, which which again being pedantic, which is on its way towards isometric, it's just never going to be isometric. I think because what you're what you describe there is like even though I'm not moving, I'm still trying. Like the, the I think the way to summarize your Sorry, the way to understand your thought process of I'm I was saying it's isometric, but what you're actually saying is, well, if the hips going into flexion and the thoracic spine's trying to extend, therefore it is concentric of the thoracic spine, supposedly. Like it's not it's not moving, yes, but the intent is for it to be moving. So just like we're in the bottom of a squat. In the bottom of a squat, whether I overcome the bar or not. Like my intent is to overcome the bar, but if I'm still for a split second in time, yeah, I'm well isometric, but not isometric, just because I'm not mo- or just because the the movement is invisible to the naked eye doesn't mean that the intent of it is not occurring. But but I think even I think we could eat, we could take that one step further, mate, and say that when I hit the bottom of a squat in that one second or that split second that you, you speak of there, no knees. Now we're not going to go into the knees discussions, but no knees will be either static on one side or relative to each other. So um, if you're, if you're hitting the bottom position you're changing the flexibility demand on the lateral musculature of the hip, uh, the posterior musculature of the hip, which all attach to the knee. So you'll see either a, a knee, a femur that rotates outwards or a femur that rotates inwards. You'll see a knee that comes inwards or a knee that comes outwards. That's motion. That is movement. So there is movement at the hip 
or the hip joint. I might not, you might not see movement from the hip move. The pelvis might not be moving, but the knee is moving. There was never a point during a squat where everything is, even if you're pinned in the bottom and you can't get up and you're holding the bar on your back at the bottom, your knees are still wobbling from side to side. Your back, your hips are still doing something and your feet are definitely doing something. There is not a single point there where everything where anything is isometric. There is always a relative motion going on somewhere. So the first thing we need to do is strength for me for strength training protocols is we need to drop the isometric crap because it isn't helping anyone. It's just essentially trying to train something that doesn't exist. And I think a lot of time is being spent on the isometric stuff, which which is which is a waste of time. Yeah, Gemma. They almost, they almost use that quite a lot as a safety mechanism in, say, like post-surgical rehab. Um, it's, it's used a lot, isn't it, isometric? Um, if, if I think about like rotator cuff surgery, the first thing when you start doing any strength work would be they want you to start doing isometric stuff as opposed to um, like active movement. And I think a lot of it is a a safety mechanism you think that actually if you get some activation through the muscle arguably um you're safer to be able to move on to something else in theory yeah i think we're seeing that similar in a in a sense of that yeah well you you spot on gem with the safety mechanism we're seeing that especially in relation to sport like in the application of strength training within within like team sports and stuff like that. Cause obviously strength training within strength dominant athletes, crossfitters, powerlifters, et cetera. Like yes, strength training is, is obviously their, their game, their world. Whereas obviously strength training is an assistance tool to increase performance in, in team sports. And that's why a lot of research is going down the safety route for how do we increase force, strength, production whilst keeping the athlete safe? Um, because they're they're scared of obviously creating injury via doing heavy centric training or well, yeah, just heavy not like they want necessarily maximal squat because they're scared of people the athletes getting injured to be able to play the sport. And and rightly so. Um so yeah, a lot of safety is is driving a lot of the research um but then the problem is then the the understanding of as as with all with all studies of and we've talked about it before at what just because that research has been done does that mean that i we blanket approach it across anyone and everyone which is where phil started with the strength training protocols yeah uh, jazz i think you've answered I, I think you've answered the initial question um, of of the podcast, or the sort of the sort of the hypothesis of the of the podcast. There is that you mentioned there the force production for the sport or relative to the sport, and I think we we spoke initially about trying to give coaches that are listening an opportunity to, to select the correct strength training protocol for their athlete. And I think once we move away from calling it again pedantic calling it strength training i think for me the misassociation with strength training people instantly think maximal strength training and they instantly think masses of weight and i think that's where that's where strength training falls down is we instantly go to right okay how much weight is on the bar 
if we if we flip that around and talk about strength training in terms of force production at relative angles for success in sport we then start to go down the the for me the correct path of how we should discuss strength training and it goes all it links your point in as well Gemma that force production relative to sport could be force production relative to activities of daily living so if we are in if we are talking about a sort of somebody who is a non-athletic in a hospital setting who has just had rotator cuff surgery the same protocols apply the relativity or the relatability to everyday life of the force production that you're trying to produce within within the patient so so there it might be carrying a shopping bag or it might be having the ability to take something down from a shelf or it might be having the ability to drive the car or talk on the telephone or whatever that is. There we're looking at being better at producing force over multiple ranges of motion. And what's interesting is, without getting into sort of rotator cuff protocols, is that me doing a rotator cuff exercise with a dumbbell is called a rehabilitation exercise, but me squatting with 200 kilos on my back is called a strength exercise both have the the absolute uh, instruction or absolute goal of producing force at at a certain joint in a certain way and both precipitate a neurological or a motor sort of motor pattern understanding so for me surely our strength training protocols need to be based around how you guys have described there joust with the force production Gemma with the sort of uh if that is in a range as you alluded to Gem, if that is in a range rotator cuff loading which isn't isometric but is a shorter range of motion because it's safer and it gets people started and your goal is to increase that range of motion increase that force production over a range of motion surely that is more specific strength training protocol than saying oh i need to get stronger so strength equals just lifting more weight yeah and the other thing that that pure point then makes me think of is this constant need for everything to be stronger without necessarily thinking what it is you're strengthening or how it is you're strengthening it's just like if it doesn't work if it's not doing what you think it should do everything seems to go down the whole sort of strengthening route um, which, again, probably needs re-examining a little bit. Yeah, and I think the other, like I said, the, the nature of strength training is that, I say, we put people, and let, let's talk about general public, because a lot of people, they, they do work with the general public, and we're trying to make them stronger, we're trying to make them more robust, or sport performance. Yeah, everyone wants to get better, even at the, that look, yeah, all levels of sport. Uh, and life and i think the problem is that we intru- we immediately introduce them to load and that force production like if you don't know it it's one of the greatest laws to live by force is mass times acceleration f equals ma from good old isaac newton fairly intelligent bloke um and like that whole everyone is focused on the mass point within within training and well the only way we increase force production is by increasing the amount of mass that we can move rather than the speed at which the acceleration of of that mass and it's always my my argument with it in terms of strength training like we instantly add weight like why are we not teaching people 
like as kids, yes, strength has to come in a child for them to be able to pick the head up off the mat. So strength does come. But then as soon as a kid can lift itself up, walk around, and it's reached that next stage of development, they then start to try and put more ground reaction force into the floor. They start to run, they start to jump. So they're actually expressing, they're wanting to accelerate everything before they are wanting to stick weight on. And then the bit by bit, as we develop through taking that continuum up through the kids that get into more spot that run around, jump all the time, leading to 16 year olds that are sprinters that have never lifted weights before and go into a gym. And because they're so used to being able to express force through speed, you ask them to pick up a bar and they can lift more weight than anybody else because they have moved their body through different ranges at different rates, velocities, the whole time they've been growing up. And then they can express, they can lift a heavier weight. So therefore are stronger, but because their ability to accelerate is so much better than everybody else's. So therefore, when we then got the kids that, or the people that haven't been exposed, haven't had a highly sporting background, they come in and then we give them weight straight away to try and increase their force production rather than teaching them how to dynamically control motion and accelerate motion themselves without the need for that external load. That's always been my kind of, I say it doesn't, adding weight isn't wrong, but what the, the problem is that everyone just goes straight to adding weight. So it's a lunge with weight before they can actually lunge well anyway. So, so I'm going to just going to push you on that joust because I want to want some more details there, buddy. Like, so you've got the whole strict versus keeping argument in there that, that you have to be able to do X amount of strict before you're allowed to go over to keeping for example, which I've never agreed with. I've never, I've never, they're two completely different exercises and should never be, um, and should never be uh, combined or the two should never meet each other. Um, Gemma, you've done, uh, you've had, a, I know you've had a look at sort of the velocity side of things and, and velocities relationship with strength and everything else. What, what does the research tell us in terms of moving moving with the intention of being faster. Now, a lot of coaches are instantly thinking, I know what they're sitting there thinking, they're thinking going, well, he's talking about power now. But am I talking about power here or am I talking about a, uh, can we differentiate, first of all, can we differentiate power and strength? And if we can, what does the research say in terms of producing velocity? So the what I was looking at is in terms of the differences between sort of percentage-based training and strength training. Um, and velocity training um, and I really like the way that Jows explains the sort of force equals mass times acceleration and, and our focus on mass without increasing the acceleration or without altering the acceleration um, and I, it seems really simple when you put it down in an equation but it isn't what we're necessarily doing in practice um, but the study that sort of caught my eye probably most was one from this year in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And it essentially did that. It compared, um, it was a relatively small group in fairness, but it compared um, male athletes. Um, half of them were doing velocity-based training and then half of them were doing percentage-based 
training. Um, it looked at their maximum jump height and it looked at back squat, um, bench press, strict press, um, and deadlift. And whilst everybody improved with the strength training and with the velocity training, um, it was favorable in the velocity training. So actually the, the group that were doing more velocity-based training as opposed to the sort of traditional percentage-based training improved more significantly, particularly in the jump and the back squat. So I think that sort of fits in with what Giles was just saying about where and what we, we, we look at with our traditional strength. Okay, so so Giles, let's, go, let's bring that back to you then. Um, so people get stronger at percentages. We've seen this. Um, you don't always have to be lifting at 100% to get stronger. No, like you, I know you've written some, some wonderful strength protocols where you've seen significant increases in weight because that was the goal, to increase weight uh, of, of particular athletes where you've actually had them lifting at 80% or 90%. Could you then attribute those gains to the fact that they're just because they're 80% they're lifting it faster and go right back to your sort of start point about velocity being as important as loading up if we come off if we come off maximal and down to the 75 80% are the gains attributed to increased velocity with the lower weights i mean the the particular strength protocol that I did design was actually um, it was actually based off three rep max, so it was around it was yeah all the percentages were based off the three RM and yeah they were down at seventy five to ninety percent of three RM which is obviously I don't know my maths isn't that great but yeah down off one rep max um, probably around seventy percent maybe um, so. Yeah, I mean the the theory. What could I attribute it to that? Yeah, for sure. I mean the the, the joys of all the different factors uh, within it. Uh, that will be one of them. Why I designed that was I want them to be moving the bar quickly. Another reason was obviously the higher, the closer to max we go, the worse the form is. So what I didn't want to do, I designed it as like an off season um, development plan. Um, the closer to max we go, obviously the worse the squat looks mechanically. So yes, I've got a high neurological stimulus um, from from doing max weight, but actually I'm reinforcing I'm reinforcing potentially bad mechanics. Obviously, we all know our one rep maxes are not the prettiest things on the planet. And what I wanted to do with these particular athletes who, who were actually coming back from injury at the time or, and yeah, suffering with pain. So that's why I kind of went down there and looked at all the different principles as to what we could do and how we could reintroduce it. So it was like, well, if I keep them moving well, I trust that the technique and the skill of the movement will actually, I want to reinforce good, good mechanics, good skill execution of movement to trust me that that will give the weight as then as much as that on top of what we just talked about with an increased rate of acceleration on the bar um, will then help to elicit the strength gains. So, so where do you two guys then draw the line between strength and power? I think we've probably reached a point now because we're moving into talking about velocity. Um, 
so I think some definitions could be nice to to now have. So, Jaws, do you do you distinguish between strength and power? Because essentially, what you're saying there is drop the percentages down, the speed of the the speed and the quality actually will go up. Now we'll talk about the, the quality in terms of force production a little later, but let's now just talk about the, the differentiation between strength and power. I mean, we can obviously do it from a, a very technical kind of point of view where we've obviously got force equals mass times acceleration. Like when we look at it from the scientific point of view, then the next kind of way of calculating power um, is the measure is the amount of force that's produced. And then the distance the object moves from that exerted force. So power, power is calculated as force or mass times acceleration times by the distance move times by the distance move, which gives work. And then our power output then is then the work that's been done divided by the time that it took. So that like in that, in that piece, yeah. How, how quickly did I get from, from A to B? Um, cause ultimately that's, that's what we want to, what we want to test is I produced the person that gets there the fastest in sport power becomes, um, whoever gets there quickest jumps, highest wins, um, or who gets the work like in CrossFit, who gets 20 reps done at 70 kilos squat, who gets over the line first. It's not who's strongest. It's who can turn that weight over at the greatest amount of acceleration. I mean, there is, there are sports, of course. Um, there are, you know, powerlifting is about how much weight you overcome, of course, it is. Um, but even when you go down the spectrum and talk about Olympic lifting, Olympic lifting, Olympic lifting is technically perf- perfect speed, isn't it? Rather than, rather than weight. Um, it is not necessarily, it requires an enormous amount of strength. I appreciate that, but it's not necessarily strength, um, a strength-based exercise. I've, I've always, I've always found it, I've always found it interesting that powerlifting is called powerlifting and not strength lifting <laughs> because they sort of, they're, they're moving quite slowly for one rep maxes, but yet it's called powerlifting because I think the appreciation of how much power is actually required. And some of these guys have got the biggest broad jumps and the biggest, uh, vertical jump scores of of anybody um and so strength and power does seem to be uh does seem to be quite interlinked uh close together closely together age house yeah exactly i mean like you said there the power lifter he squats slowly but if that was me or you under that bar we wouldn't be moving at all so they're still moving relatively faster than we would even move but compare that speed relative to an Olympic lifter and the, the speed rate goes up in the Olympic lifting, but therefore, but the weight is therefore lighter. So it's that whole kind of trade-off between the heavier the weight is obviously the slower we slower we move because of core contraction is so much greater natural self-preservation. The body needs to feel that weight and not, it doesn't want to bounce into the bottom position um, that quickly. Um, it needs to know where everything is and keep it, keep as much control over it as possible to protect the system. Cause that, that is ultimately what this body is designed to do. We've just decided as a human race to, to try and challenge and see what it can adapt to and what it can cope with. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, it's constantly fighting us saying, why would you even want to do that? 
Um, so naturally these mechanisms come into play where to, uh, yeah, control our, control our outputs. So the heavier the weight is, the slower we, slower we travel with it. Before we start talking, Giles and I were talking about, um, how sprinters are obviously a, a pa- essentially a power athlete. And Giles, you were saying about the statistics of, um, sprinting and foot mechanics going through say four times body weight when they're sprinting and if you I mean I'll I'll pass that back over to you to explain it a bit better but if you compare that to how much a a strength athlete would have to lift it just it surprised me when you said it so I think it's worthwhile mentioning it now yeah um so basically yeah the the best so many studies have been done on it, but the the ground reaction for the amount of force traveling through the human body um, in during sprinting is measured as up to four times body weight, and it's even. But that's just through the body. What they've actually said is that the Achilles tendon it's even greater, but no, but no actual kind of um, defined number, um, which is obviously why most people's Achilles blow during sprints or during a box jump where there's all that ground reaction force going going through it so yeah it was four times body weight so for example Usain Bolt was 94 reported as being like 94 kilos so that would be the equivalent of 376 kilos traveling through a single leg so up one leg that um as it hits the floor um and if we look at kind of statistics um powerlifters they do squat so a 59 kilo power powerlifter um world record is 240 kilos squat both legs squat both legs um a power, 105 kilo powerlifter is 343 kilos i feel like that's a really good example of power versus strength i feel like when you said that to me earlier it sort of really made sense um so yeah i mean the 50, 59 kilo lifter obviously he he's got the the statistics there is that's four times body weight whereas the 105 kilo lifter is three three point two times body weight um, we need to we just need to remember that we do need to take some of that load off due to momentum like momentum from the sprinter will offset some of that global load although it will still be greater um load going through the body it, it would it, it is still offset by momentum um the forward momentum does offset some of that load force going through the body it makes it it well rather say offset it what it does it negates the need for the body to stabilize the joint because the momentum actually does <clears throat> the momentum stabilizes the joint for you so the, the therefore the co-contraction doesn't need to be as great in terms of stabilizing the joint. It can deal with the greater load where in the power lifter example, um, they also need to stabilize the joint because they have very little momentum, which then again links perfectly into the velocity understanding in that there is a greater power expression with the sprinter moving faster, but the greater power expression, the greater velocity, the, the easier stability becomes for a joint. Um, and I think the interesting, just jumping, talking about marathon runners, for example, uh, seeing marathon runners who have a sort of 215, 220 uh, marathon time and then ask them to stand on one leg and have some of the worst stability and worst balance 
ever, but you actually take the the power lifter there, the guys who are lifting some big weight, and their actual single leg balance is usually quite strong. It's usually quite good um, because they're used to that slower, slower contraction. Um, just just a, an interesting point, guys. Yeah, and I think, and, and that's the point, is it? When we just look at it from, we can't look at everything in the absolute. Like the the number, there's so many factors within it. Like we can't define it as as just strength or power. We can't define it as, um, yeah. Oh well, they lift the more, so they lift the heavier, so that's great. It's like there's there's so many nuances that that make a difference and matter to the big picture. And the point is, when we understand the big picture or what that person needs, now we have to make our decisions of well, what type of training to do. I mean just thinking about where we said about we talked about protocols all the way at the beginning there phil i i did an assessment with an olympic lifter recently who who'd had a really bad um lateral ankle sprain with a complete kind of um rupture of the peroneus longus muscle on the outside of the leg um required surgery um and had been yeah rehabilitating and was kind of struggling to get back to numbers but anyway, like within once i'd done my assessment well, I, I did an assessment with her and it kind of became like looking at her body she was again that typical uses speed like you've said there the marathon runner she uses speed to help stabilize so actually she was very very unstable in her in herself and like what we've kind of found with our experience of, of people like to get tension like getting tension in their body actually having some residual fatigue and a greater training volume helps with with that maintenance of of total body tension so i just said to her i said oh looking at your body now what would be great for you with squatting would be to just do some high volume like some higher volume work and some higher volume of lifting and she just turned around and said oh it's really interesting you say that because when i'm prepping for a comp um she's obviously always just followed like i say i mean we've talked about it a number of times the culture of sport they just go through the the process that's always been done so it's like oh we do some volume accumulation and then we go to intensity and actually what she always found was that when she was prepping for a competition she found that she hit all the prs all the personal best within the volume accumulation phase and then as soon as she went down to intensity and didn't have as high a training volume actually all the lifts started to drop off again and that's the whole crux of well what what system is right like we don't five by five versus five by three versus ten by ten if you got the biggest bang for your buck off that, there's so many reasons why you did at that point in time. There's your chronic and acute training load over the last X amount of months that means it was potentially a deload or potentially a uh, yeah a step up in stimulus or there's that, that relationship there. There's so many to say which reason that there is no squat protocol that's great. Like it's only the right, squat protocol for the right person at the right time um yeah and i think that's i think that that's it that that is the issue isn't it i think we who wouldn't look at the person lifting the most weight and go what are they doing let's try and copy that like that's the logical thing to do to go okay well power lifters um power lifters um lift that much weight they're the best at lifting weight or they produce the mu- as much force, can we say. So whatever they're doing 
is right. So we'll just apply that to our sport. And if you're coaching powerlifters and there's better, much better coaches than I am to powerlifters. So I don't want to get out onto water where out in water, where deep water, where I'm, I'm out of my, my depth there. Um, great. Give them more weight. They should have more weight on, but for, every other sport multi-directional force production is more relevant than how much weight they're lifting. Yes. They need to be able to produce more force, but that doesn't, as you, as we've said that what now we're getting to the, the crux of how do we determine the correct protocol as coaches, what you need to do is you need to look at the demands of the sport and look at one thing we haven't mentioned is as well, you have mentioned the strength is an absolute, but we haven't applied that to a multi-directional setting in that in the, the nervous system needs to also be able to know how to produce sub-maximal force for most sports. You know, even if you're going to two reps or three reps of something through to sprinting, through to a game of football where you're changing direction, you will, you will need to produce force, different forces at different velocities at different times. And that process needs to be trained and needs to be developed. So how do you develop a strength training protocol for every eventuality that's going to become one put on, on, on a football pitch? How, how do we, how do we incorporate that into a training program? Because saying it sort of as it is, if you are coaching footballers and you've got them on four by eight back squats, you're failing your footballer. Like, that's not the protocol. That's not, that's not, that's not clever enough. That's not nuanced enough. That's not, that's not deep enough. Um, and so can you guys talk a little bit about how do you go about firstly selecting the angles and angles and directions of which force needs to be applied? And then what types of sets and reps are we talking here? Are we talking and how much load are we using and how do you increase the speeds? And, 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 and so, so I'm the coach at home and I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm going, right, guys, I've got a point. Um, I need to look at how to produce force within this sport. Then how do I load that force? How do I make that stronger? Because strength training is about making things stronger, not about lifting more weight, right? I think we've established that. So, so what's the next step for the coaches at home? Gemma, Jaws. Well, I'm a physio, so I just do 10 times three. Isn't that right? Constantly? <laughs> Obviously. I'm um, yeah, I think ultimately you have to, like you, you just said, I think if it was me, I would look at the sport and try and really understand that as much as possible. So for Olympic lifting, I would break down each part of the movement and just see, okay, where am I in the sagittal plane where am I in the frontal plane what what, what are they doing in the transverse plane um and then I would have to look at whoever I've got in front of me um their experience their um their levels because it's sort of looking at the perhaps traditional percentage training I think potentially that falls down a little bit as well with um the newer athletes because if you're going based on a one rec max when you're strength training with a say newer athlete or with a somebody that's new to a certain sport their one rep max will continually move so and they're more likely to get increases in that so basing your percentages on a one rep max which is variable won't necessarily work so again I would try and look to see who I've got in front of me um and then 
sort of base everything from from that. Yeah, I think it depends obviously on the sport being key um, and the needs of it. Uh, if we go, yes, we've got to look at separating it out into its, uh, well, trying to separate out as best as you can. So as they say, we are just doing a strength and power session. So we're going to work on, if it's a team field sport athlete, we're going to work on a change of direction, multiple chain, like hops, hops and lands, hops and takeoffs, um, things like that. But what you've also got to, yes, it's good to assess them and we need to assess them away from the sport um, because we need to see how they do it. Like I say, what one rep looks like, what what two reps looks like, how quickly that that movement fatigues, because then what we've got to build on top of that, which is what comes in nice, well, which is a huge part of CrossFit, for example, is, okay, it's great having that one skill once, that one rep once, um, but what does it look like when my heart rate's at 180 because I'm in the middle of a wad? Can I still perform the same skill? Um, so yeah, that's that's the key part of, of football is like oh our team sport. If I I've, I've just had to do a, a 30 meter sprint to to the back post because the wingers running down the line, he's put the cross in, and now I've got to jump over the over the centre back and head towards the goal. Like that's a huge expression of power in the 70th minute after with my heart rate average around 160. Um, that's power whilst under a huge amount of fatigue um, and therefore feels like the CrossFit is now out there 40 kilos with your heart rate at 40 kilos for 10 reps in Fran with a heart rate at 180 feels a lot heavier um, when your heart rate's that high than it does if you're fresh. Um, so, yeah. Jazz, what you're telling me now, what I'm hearing and what you're starting to do now is you're actually starting to link strength and power with endurance. Yeah. And again, that's something that's that, that's potentially misunderstood or lost is that a marathon running is a power endurance event. You are essentially doing a single leg expression of power at, at a, from one leg to the other on, on, on one at a time, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, you could tell us more about like the strength endurance component in a sense of working with a cyclist, like what the watts that those guys can hit. So give me an average 20 minute watts for, um, for your cyclists. Yeah. I mean, if they're any good, they're over 400. So they're over 400 watts. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, CrossFit is that, that we're working with, like we've got, we've got the, um, yeah, some of the boys around over 330 and then uh yeah the the competitive girls around two or north of 250 but like ask ask them to get those 400 watts in itself like on it on its own merit like that's hard enough to even hold for for a minute right for some people like you won't even won't even be able to get it there or if you can get it there it's definitely not lasting for, for 20 minutes so that is yeah what you're saying there strength the the ability to produce force for a longer duration and and i think it as a coach it frees you now there are still elements of i mean you're a crossfit coach joust um or you're 
part of your job is being a CrossFit coach. So there are still elements where you need to lift weight and the score of the event will be determined on how much weight is on the bar. So there, there is still, and I'm, I'm not oblivious to that, to that fact, but there is still something that's very sort of freeing as a coach to not be sort of bogged down in the, in the, how heavy the, the barbell is uh, when looking at how to apply strength training to sport. I think we instantly look for when someone needs a greater range of motion, we instantly look to the yoga world, for example, for inspiration. When someone needs a greater amount of stability, we often look to the physiotherapy world for inspiration. And here, I think what we've often done is we've looked to the, the powerlifting world. And the problem is we've put two and two together, but we've, we've not come up with four because the application of that directly to CrossFit or football or running or rugby, there is application and there is carryover, but it could be done a lot, lot better if we look at it from a specific force production curve rather than a generic or a sort of bulletproof, uh, sort of just sort of scattergun approach. Um, and I think I often talk about unintentional gains and unintentional gains is if you do stimulate nervous system and you do do strength training, you do, you do we can see the research proves it you you become a better runner. You 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 don't necessarily become a more efficient runner, but you become a better runner or you become a faster runner. But it's 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 an unintentional gain rather than an intentional gain of specifically looking at joint angles and reproducing those joint angles and reproducing force in those joint angles and looking at movement patterns when applying strength. And I think you're missing a trick as a coach. If you're looking at the shelf and seeing, looking at the the shelf and going, I want to take that program off the shelf and apply that with my athletes. Now there's some, there's some significant science and some great science about how to get stronger if you're doing five by five, six by six. But honestly, uh, I work with a lot of coaches. I meet a lot of coaches it is very, very rare. I meet a coach that can actually tell me the science behind why they've chosen that particular strength training protocol. There are some, and kudos to those guys. Proud of you. Thank you. It's more of you we need. But the majority of strength training programs that are out there are taken from the shelf. They're, the coach themselves has looked around the internet, has seen, okay, A, B, C, and D have got better from this. I'm going to apply that. Or they've been on a one-day seminar, or they've been to the gym. They walk into the gym, and the strongest guy in the gym is following it. So they've they pulled it off the shelf and and used that. I think it's very freeing as a coach to move away from that shelf insecurity. You know where you stand. You know when a, when you when you're sent out shopping and you stand in front of the shelf and you're not quite sure what to buy. To move away from that and be more specific in your strength training application. Yeah, for, and I say the the off the shelf, the the fashionable, and that we've done it. Like we've there's plenty of times in the past where. Um, yeah, you are looking for, well, I need to try something, so I'll do some research and I'll do it myself. But then the problem is when you analyze those, where they've come from, like those protocols are often designed, like you said, by powerlifters, by Olympic lifters. And you're talking about protocols that are designed for the elite of the elite of the elite, the guys that have a, a huge training age within that sport 
So all the bands, all the chains, all the the different methods, everything like that have been designed by people that need to change the stimulus somehow to an elicit response because they've put in the hours leading up to that and they've got their bases. Just like we've talked about previously with endurance training, you don't need, if you are new to running, just go out there and enjoy the process of running. Like build up some volume in your running. You don't need to be going straight to hill sprints, straight to um, fart-like training, intervals, whatever you want to call it. Like all those advanced training protocols are designed for people that have been doing it a very long time to nudge them up. If you are a, a, a if you've got a young training age and you're very new to strength training, you don't need the advanced principles. You just need some basics. You probably need to clean up your technique. Like you need to look at your squat form. Is it as good as it could be? No, I need to work on that. I need to get some how can I, there's so many things you could be working on before you need to look at the off the shelf sexy program that was designed for people who are in a different squatting universe to your, or whatever strength training universe, whatever we want to call it to where you'll ever be. Um, we just need some basics applied really well. And like, like we've talked about earlier, I want to see velocity. I want, I want to see, well, how well do you move you? Can you jump? Like, do you have enough, can you produce enough force so that you jump really well? Because if you can't jump, then ha- effectively we are applying force to a bar. So if you can't actually jump off the floor yourself, your ability to produce force innately yourself is very, very low. And we need to work on those basics, which side benefit of it, it's lower, less load on the body. Well, not necessarily less load on the body, as we can say from the the statistics of what ground reaction force does. But yeah, we don't have to be under a heavy barbell all of the time in training. Um, you originally asked us about, Jazzy and I, about rep schemes and what we would do. And I think I skirted around the question because I don't know that there's, and from what it sounds like, is there isn't a one size fits all for everything. And actually by defining it as this is strength training, this is endurance training, this is power training, we're compartmentalizing ourselves and actually limiting what we're able to do. So I think potentially that's why, personally, I avoid answering the, well, actually I do categorically always three times five or five times five or whatever it might be. Good answer, Gemma. I think uh, I think that's it. I think that there, there isn't an answer to to why how many sets and reps i think i will i think we we also need to talk about the, the sets and reps side of things i think that you will always end up the last three or four reps are always hard so if i do four reps for i do four hard reps if i do 16 reps i do 12 uncomfortable reps and four hard reps i think we naturally one thing that's often not talked about within strength training protocols is that, you know, like the the last kilometer of a run is 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 usually the hardest kilometer of the run because you've you've set a pace based around the distance of the run and your own ability. And I think when you're choosing weights or the coach is choosing weights for an athlete, they'll typically, if you're doing 16 reps or 20 reps or three reps, it doesn't matter. They'll typically select a weight that 
will be uncomfortable for the last 10 to 15% of the total rep range. Um, and so for, for, for what, what's interesting is the sort of, um, the, the adaption that you then have to, to that weight with the higher rep ranges, you are risking a little more in terms of musculoskeletal fatigue. You're risking a little bit more in terms of hormonal, hormonal stress. You're risking a little bit more in terms of neurological, neurological fatigue, but, but max is max. Um, and a, a, there's a reason a front squat is lower load than a back squat and it's because of the biomechanical changes of the relationship of the bar in, in, in relation to center of mass and by altering the body's position in relation to center of mass what you'll always do is you'll create make the exercise feel harder i.e you'll create more load on the system and what's interesting is people will often say that the strength difference or strength stimulus gain from a front squat to a back squat there isn't a huge difference between the two but if you ask them then what how a step up compares to a back squat or you ask how a lateral lunge compares to a back squat you'll be told that you can't compare the two because one's strength and one's not strength um when really max is max like once i can't get home once i do if i'm doing 12 repetitions or, or four repetitions at the point where my body has to produce more force than it's able to do i will fail um and sort of evolutionary we don't get stronger because the body wants to lift more weight the body gets stronger as a protective adaption mechanism so i.e the body says what is this idiot doing to me why is he why is he put or she putting me through all of this all of this sort of uh, stress, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll make an adaption to that stress uh, so that when the idiot does it to me next time, I'll be better prepared for it. And that's essentially why, why we get stronger with the sort of quite, quite sort of basic, uh, basic physiology. And so, and so that stimulus can then come in a plethora of ways in terms of, as I say, you change the angle on the body from back squat to front squat. So if that's a difference, you can't then you cut you can't then say that a lateral lunge or a step up, if you can go to maximum and if you push out to that point where not necessarily maximum, but you produce enough force to stimulate a stimulus or to stimulus stimulates a reaction within the body to lay down new networks which will then protect us going forwards. So there is absolutely no necessity at any stage to say it's about weight because it's not about weight. It's about what the body is sensing as a stimulus in that particular force production requirement at a range, at an angle, at a joint. So when it comes to sets and reps, to stimulate that amount of force production, you probably do need to be under 20 reps because you will still get stronger with 100 reps. There's no doubt about that. You will, you will improve strength, but you do want that protection stimulus if you're talking about purely overcoming more weight. Now, if I want to be better at running, it, it could be an interesting argument to say that, okay, I want to do 100 reps of something because I want to be able to be teach my body to produce force over longer periods of time. So again, sets and reps for me, come back to specificity if you're talking about football you would probably want to go with a slightly higher rep range and again 
you need to change the stimulus from what they do every single day. So there needs to be enough applicability in terms of functional understanding of replicating joint angles and movements, but there still needs to be something that over and above what they do on every what they do every single day to create that protection stimulus to 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 create more units to to create a neural network which makes them stronger. So they're coming down the rep ranges to sort of 20, 25 from what might be on in a game of football might be hundreds if they're kicking the ball, change the direction, whatever it is we're looking to strengthen. Um, all the way down to sort of, you know, I often think crossfitters that that are doing sets of two and sets of three has very little carryover to CrossFit. You know, a set of 16, a set of 12, a set of 20 has infinitely more carryover from a strength perspective to to CrossFit than a two or a three rep max does. Um, and you're just missing an opportunity there to get stronger in more relative, more relative ranges. Um, the issue with that is, though, it hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, that's the problem. That is the problem. That is the problem. Well, yeah, yeah. And then, and then we, and then we instantly. The next step is uh, we move into the overtraining argument, which I think we need to do a podcast on. We need to talk about overtraining and and uh, volume management at another point. I don't think we should drop down down that line today. But but it does hurt, Jas. It does hurt. There's, you know, the it's so it's so funny, isn't it, that the things that hurt the most tend to be the most unpopular things when I program them. You know, and the things that it's weird, isn't what's it? What's wrong and, with people? Yeah, <laughs> like and five the and five penny. Good. Exactly. Like the things that, and and it's 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 really interesting that people never argue. Not that people argue so much in their program, but people never discuss elements of their program that they think they like or want to do. They always discuss the elements of the program that are tough and that are hard. Now, the the direct application of five by three or five by five back squats for a crossfitter is relatively irrelevant. Um, it will work on their, it will work, it will help them with their Olympic lifting and their one rep max Olympic lifting. Um, but until they can do a legless rope climb and 10 unbroken muscle ups, they probably shouldn't be worrying about their Olympic lifting anyway. Um, so yeah, you know what I mean? So it's, it's just that, it's just that conundrum, but of, um, of of how much how how much how soon uh, and, and like we like we mentioned earlier the the problem is the protocols when we go off the shelf it's off the shelf within what picture the amount of people that in the past have they've gone to the best uh, they've got a powerlifting program from a powerlifting coach an Olympic weightlifting program from an Olympic weightlifting coach an endurance program from an endurance coach. And all these people are highly, highly experienced and write great programs and understand the in the ins and outs of their sport to to the nth degree. But putting it all together for CrossFit, knowing what time, uh, yeah, what amount of volume relative to each of the other components should be done is is where the the fun comes in crossfit but where people come unstuck following those following those uh yeah like i say the perfect strength program when i don't have anything else to do other than like yeah they're a strength athlete so they don't even have to worry about the cardiovascular base or they don't have to worry about whether they can do gymnastics or or whichever the 
the balance between the whole program is what makes CrossFit programming so much fun. Stroke, headache, stroke. Yeah, why do we do that the same way as we do 4 by 16 So, Gemma, if we're going to slowly wrap up um, the discussion on strength and power, um, what would you be your take-homes as the coach? What, what sort of two parts would you send out there from, from today's podcast for, so, for things to think about? If you do it pretty much from a rehabilitation, physiotherapy point of view, I what are your take-homes? Say- certainly try and be specific so like your example with the football is is really good you would increase rep ranges for certain sports you might decrease rep ranges for certain sports but try and be really specific about about the sport and I sometimes think that is certainly historically where I've failed and I think that has changed my practice probably the most um so yeah that certainly that is and also think about vary in the environment or vary in the the stimulus so adding in some speed work that will help with power strength example and try not to be so concerned about what you're about compartmentalizing stuff Chelsea understand yeah understand the sport understand yourself as an athlete um not and hopefully have a coach nearby you to help you put it all together um but knowing when to push hard. Uh, so when is right to go to technical failure? Like it's okay for the to be working on the technique um, and getting stronger because the mechanic is better as much as it's necessary to go to max to stimulate to stimulate the neurological response. Um, because we've got the, I say we want to create the right pattern as well as then create the overload. So uh getting the balance between those two for me cool and then i'll just wrap it up by saying that for me it's about if even if you're going with 80 percent, you'll still lift it as fast as you can you won't you won't unless you've obviously been given tempo uh, tempo work but but if you're just lifting yourself you'll lift you'll lift 80 percent as fast as you can so whether you like it or not you're always doing something maximally so you might have sub sub weight on there, but then you'll lift it at a faster speed over more reps. So whatever it comes to, it's going to hurt, and it should hurt. Um, strength training isn't strength training isn't pretty. The greater the stimulus, as we say often, more is always more. Um, and 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 yeah, being able to to sort of have the talk with yourself and get down and, and do the dirty reps in any range of motion at any angle of velocity will, will be the difference of your strength training uh, adaption. Um, don't get too drawn into the dogmatic percentages and off-the-shelf programming. Thanks for your time, guys. It's been a pleasure, as always. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lots of fun, that. Sign up now get your free month of Red Pill's generic program is designed specifically for those who want to get more out of their training than CrossFit classes can deliver. You'll develop your all-round CrossFit ability and delve into Red Pill's signature combination of movement mechanics and continuous improvement of efficiency. For more information, visit redpilltraining.com.